get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Giboney. Justin, we're uh uh, we're almost in August, uh, halfway through summer. H- how are you feeling? You, uh, you, you getting enough barbecues in? Plenty of barbecues, uh, plenty of uh, family road trips, and so I've had a good summer thus far. Uh, always hate to see it come to an come to an end. It, it always goes too quickly, but we've enjoyed it. Yeah, I saw uh, now uh, the Cincinnati Music Festival was. Uh, this last weekend, and I was getting a little jealous of your your Instagram. Uh, 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 it, you went to see Boys to Men, right? And uh, and Common was there, and it, it seemed like a pretty amazing concert. Yeah, there were a few artists. Uh, I think what stood out to me was certainly Boys to Men, and the more that me and my friends talked about it after going to the concert, we realized they don't get enough respect, man. I mean, when it comes to R and B, there are a few groups, if any who have as many hits as they do, you know, you know, a good concert when you go and you know all the words to all the songs that they sing. And that was one of the only groups that could have, you know, six or seven songs where everybody knew all the songs. And so they, they don't get enough credit, but we certainly enjoyed it. Yeah. 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 I, uh, it, I think Wanya Morris is one of the best frontmen of, uh, you know, of like the nineties, post 90s era he's just an amazing amazing lead singer so uh glad to see you got to do that and you know uh, i wasn't uh you you helped me curb my uh my jealousy because you put some videos on instagram so i i felt like i was right there with you so i appreciated that <laughs> always trying to share the experience brother <laughs> that's right well uh as always, we got quite a bit to get into and let's start with you know what i think is uh you know, po- positive news for President Trump. We saw last quarter's economic numbers come in. Uh, GDP's at a 4.1%, which, uh, you know, of course, uh, th- the president has been touting these numbers with a range of uh, a range of uh, exaggerations and uh, misstatements. But but the, the fact holds that the, la- the economy last quarter had 4.1%. Uh, uh, growth, Justin. As we get closer to the midterms, and I don't want to make this, you know, entirely political, but it, uh, these numbers do have political implications. Uh, this is this is going to serve to uh, to puff up uh, Trump's claim that he's, you know, a businessman, knows how to run the economy like no other president has, and uh, you know, th- these numbers are making someone that. Media and as we'll talk about later, uh, uh, press officials and many others, including you know the two of us, have called the president a liar at various points. The economic numbers are kind of uh, uh, lifting up his central claim, which is that he's this businessman who understands the economy. Uh, how do you how do you think these GDP numbers are going to affect uh, politics, and what do you think it says about the state of our economy generally? 
So, yeah, taking the first question, uh, the second question first, you know, this is good for the economy. And not only is this good for Trump, as you stated, it's good for the American people. Um, any way that you cut these numbers up, this is a benefit uh, to the American people, especially uh, from where we've been coming from. Right. Uh, coming out of the recession and the very bad numbers that we had seen for so long. This is good for all of us. And I think to be intellectually honest, we all have to admit that. If these numbers continue into the third quarter, it could also be good for the Republican Party, uh, show that their tax cuts and that their uh, policy in regard to tariffs was actually good for the country. I would I would say that's yet to be seen, though. There's you know, there's still numbers that we see, need to see come out. Yeah. Uh, I want to give a little bit of the background of this just so people have an understanding of what we're talking about. So when we say the economy's up and these things are doing well, we're talking about the gross domestic product uh, or the GDP. And this is really how we measure a country's economic health and economic activity. Uh, it's really about productivity within an economy. Uh, the GDP is a standard measure that allows us to compare the economies of different countries. And it's very informative uh, for the government, uh, for private com- uh, companies uh, in the process of their decision making. It tells them where everything's at. Uh, this is how we would know if, if the country were in a depression, a recession, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you may be asking, well, what goes into these numbers? You know, what are the inputs? Uh, this number is calculated from things like exports and imports, uh, consumer spending, private domestic investment, and also government spending. It's calculated on a quarterly basis and annually, and it has to be adjusted based on inflation. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to, it wouldn't be accurate from year to year. So each year uh, that this is calculated, we make sure that uh, inflation is accounted for. Now, the numbers coming out of the Bureau of Economic Analysis at the Commerce Department show, as as Michael said, a a four point one percent four point one percent growth in the second quarter of two thousand and eighteen. This equals about eighteen point five billion dollars of additional output from the American uh, economy. Uh, these are the best numbers that we've seen in a quarter since June of 2014. And at this rate, we, you know, we'll have the best year of growth in a decade. Some economists are saying that we may have around 3% growth this year. Again, we need to kind of kind of wait and see on that. Something else that we should be paying attention to is that the unemployment rate is at 4%. Uh, the New York Times reported that factories are hiring at the highest rate in two decades. Exports rose uh, 9.3% in the second quarter as well. And Michael points out very well that the, <laughs> that Trump is touting this uh, accurately and inaccurately. But it's one of those things that you have to give him for now. Uh, these numbers are good. Uh, they should be taken seriously. But some in- uh, economists would also warn that they also have to be placed into context. So it's not all good. We need to make sure that there are some factors that could um, put America in a place where we don't rise and kind of hit the numbers that we're expecting. And I want to go over some of that stuff as well. Um, so a lot of people are saying this growth is great and we're going to acknowledge that, but it's not sustainable. We'll have to see whether this keeps going, continues to go up in the third quarter. Many are expecting it to slow down a little bit in the third quarter. Again, that'll have a lot to do um, that may say a lot for the midterms. Something else we want to keep an eye on that actually is slow is wage growth. Wage growth is really at the center of the struggles of many Americans because we're seeing inflation, we're seeing a rise in uh, interest rates. But if 
wages don't grow with the you know with uh though that those rises and inflate with that rise in inflation then that's problematic housing was also somewhat weak and actually subtracted about uh 0.04% from the economy uh again we expect that the fed is going to probably raise interest rate rates one or two times again this year so all those are all factors that we can consider as we look at these numbers but in general it's good for the country we'll just have to keep an eye out to see if uh, it continues to rise or if it kind of levels off or, or leads to something that's not so good. So just keep your eyes peeled. We'll be looking for those third quarter numbers to see if this is uh, what we need it to be. We should all be hoping that our economy continues to grow. Yeah. And, and you know, we talked a lot about trade last week and uh, listeners will remember, you know, what one thing we said was, uh, you know, a, a lot of people were nervous about Trump's aggressive uh, strategy on trade, but we we flagged for y'all that uh, the president of the EU commission was headed to the White House, and he was in a tough spot as well, because if uh, U.S. Fellow, followed through on their commitment to raise tariffs, it would really be a bad situation for everybody. And uh, we, we said, you know, if Trump gets out of this meeting, uh, with some kind of concession from the EU, it's going to be a validation and vindication of his more uh, uh, combative strategy, uh, and that's something of what 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 happened. Justin, uh, uh, a, a deal was announced uh, that uh, EU imports of soy, EU imports of natural gas would would uh, increase. There's conversations on the table, though nothing that's been you know firmly agreed to that uh, tariffs would be lowered on the EU side on American goods. Some are speculating that that could be on uh, on uh, cars, which is r- really the uh, what what Trump was aiming at. Now, uh, Cato Institute uh, says that, uh, which is a conservative libertarian think tank, says that these are changes that would have happened anyways. China. Uh, raise their tariffs on U.S. soy as a retaliatory measure. And so U.S. had an uh, an excess of soy. The EU could buy that up for the right price uh, on natural gas. Uh, similar situation that the economics uh, uh, suggested that EU might be interested in more. Uh, but, but again, it's just one of those things where um, Trump played this well, whether it was um, uh, both politically uh, he put Junker in, in a, who's the EU, uh, uh, the president of the EU Commission, in in, in a tough spot where Junker had to save face, uh, and Trump was able to claim credit for moving the EU and keeping uh, trade relations strong. So it was it was a a good economic week uh, for the president and and therefore for the country, uh, and, and it'll be interesting to see. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, economies hit snags over uh, over August and over the uh, over the summer. It'll be really interesting to see if if Trump gets caught up uh, by uh, by by the summer, and we'll see those those numbers soon enough. Uh, all right, we're going to take our our first break. Uh, when we get back, we have uh, a bunch to discuss. We're going to talk about Jerry Jones and the NFL. We're going to talk about. Uh, uh, Trump may be doing well on the economy, but he's uh, continuing to war on journalists. We have a few other uh, interesting topics to get into. This is the Church Politics Podcast. 
All right, we're back at the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, Justin, I, I think we want to be a bit careful when we talk about President Trump in the press uh, to not act as though uh, he's the first president to have tension with, uh, with the press and with reporters. That is certainly not true. The White House Correspondents Association had plenty of problems with President Obama. Uh, and, and, uh, especially when it came to, uh, a, uh, investigating reporters and, uh, uh, calling out whistleblowers and prosecuting whistleblowers, uh, uh, the press association and leading sort of press voices had issues. And so w- w- with that caveat, yeah, uh, we are in a pretty interesting situation here where, uh, AG Salzberger, the publisher of the New York times, uh, was called to the White House uh, earlier this month for a meeting with President Trump, and he went uh, and delivered a, a pretty pretty strong message. Uh, th- th- let me read from this statement from Salzberger, who's the publisher of arguably, although there's not too much argument, the most important newspaper in the country. Uh, he's, uh, he, he writes, my, my main purpose for accepting the meeting was to raise concerns about the president's deeply troubling anti-press rhetoric. I told the president directly that I thought that his language was not just de- divisive, but increasingly dangerous. Uh, at one point, uh, it's been reported that, uh, the, when Salzberger, uh, told Trump that, uh, the New York Times now had to have armed security outside the New York Times, the president's response was to, uh, express surprise that they didn't have armed security already. Uh, Justin, clearly the political, uh, play here is is clear. I saw a survey that came out uh, just over the last few days that showed that among Trump's strongest supporters, uh, something like 91% uh, trust Trump as a, uh, President Trump as a trusted source of news, and only 11% of those, uh, of those Americans uh, trust the quote, mainstream media. And so clearly there's a, there's a political angle uh, here that is, uh, has a goal in mind of controlling information uh, and, and uh, accrediting some information and discrediting and undermining other information, which is not a unique political goal at all. But, but this president is doing it in in, uh, a a pretty troubling way. Uh, What do you think of, how President Trump is uh, talking about the press, treating the press. Do you think that this is one of those cases, the press often get beat up for focusing on stories that are related to them? You know, the press writing on the state of the press. Uh, is this one of those one of those things, or, or should the American people be concerned about the fourth estate? Yeah, well, to your point, uh, Trump's rhetoric is is dangerous. Um, he is not the first president to have issues with uh, with the press. I think there's always somewhat of an adversarial back and forth sometimes within those conversations. But I do think he took it to a point that I haven't seen it taken to before. And so I can't speak of all throughout all history. But as of recent history, presidents haven't taken it to where he's he's taking it. And, and my, my biggest problem is that Trump doesn't seem to appreciate or care about uh, the press being so essential to democracy. Um, 
And it's almost if, if they're not agreeing with him, then they're fake. They're worthless. On a number of occasions, he has called them the enemy of the people. Right. It's one thing to say, hey, you guys can do this better. You guys can do that better. But when you're calling them the enemy of the people and saying that everything that they're given to the people is fake, that becomes problematic, especially in at a time that's as polarized as everything is right now. Right. The press is there for accountability. They're there to shed light on the mechanism of government and make sure that it is what it's representing to be and that there aren't any dark corners where the people's interest isn't being served. That's their job. We saw that done maybe best in the uh, progressive era, right, where you had these journalists who were called muckrakers or whatever, who were making sure that they were they were finding as many things as they could that was going wrong with the government, going wrong with industry to help the people. And that's really what journalism and the press should be about. And I think in, in most instances, most of the people in our media and in, in, in journalism, that's what they're there to do. Um, they're there to serve the people and be helpful and make sure that we're getting not only what we pay for, but uh, what we're getting is within in the ideal of what America is supposed to be and what we're aspiring to to be. Those things are important. And again, I don't think Trump has an appreciation for that. And he just wants to make sure that nothing bad is said about him. I get it, but he's gone too far and it has come to the point of being dangerous. That said, we have also have to admit that the press has lost the confidence of the American people to a large extent. Mm-hmm. And that all that can't be blamed on Trump. Right. Right. Uh, we even saw a Gallup poll in 2017 that found that Americans trust in mass media to report the news fully uh, accurately and fairly was at the lowest point in history. Only 32% of Americans said they had a great deal or, or even a fair amount of trust in the media. That wasn't just Republicans. Only 51% of Democrats trusted the media, 30% of independents and 14% of Republicans. That's a problem. And as many people on the left tend to do, We're placing all our problems and saying it's Trump. You can't do that. That was a problem before Trump even came around and it's getting worse. I I can even observe as someone who uh, is more traditional or moderate in in their uh, cultural views. Sometimes the reporting is just appalling in in what they cover and and how they cover it. It just doesn't seem fair sometimes. Now, I don't want to question anybody's veracity, but but it seems to me that a lot of these folks are too bound to a certain ideology at times. Um, And they seem to be focused on like preaching to the cosmopolitan choir, which isn't as big as they may think that it is. And I would urge folks not to um, undervalue or actually underestimate uh, people's ability to see when things are being spun a certain way. Um, And I think that may be at the heart of, you know, America's Americans lack of trust. What are your thoughts, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I've said before on this podcast, when it comes to religion and reporting, I, I tend to think we're in something of a, a golden age just because of the number of amazing reporters who are doing incredible work. Uh, but we're only paying attention to that because for so long and obviously continuing to, to, to today, there's so much awful reporting and frankly ignorant reporting about religion uh especially when it comes to questions of public life and so yeah i mean uh, uh 
the other thing to add to this is that uh, trust in all kinds of institutions are plummeting. And so there's actually this, the, there was this story last week about uh, how teenagers, uh, uh, especially those 13 to, to 18, uh, are using Instagram uh, to discuss and debate and share political news. Uh, and the, the, the reporter kind of noted that uh, these folks were, uh, these folks, these teens uh, were especially distrustful of media, whether they were progressive or conservative or whatever, they were distrustful of media. Uh, but these Instagram flop accounts, and that's the name from, you could look up the story in the Atlantic about uh, uh, teens and Instagram, but they're using these flop accounts uh, and that's where they're going to get get their their news and it's rife with misinformation and all kinds of uh really uh half information uh and so you know th- this this uh falling out of institutions is uh is a major problem and i'm i'm worried that we aren't contributing to our news organizations what they're going to need to uh, to be viable in the future. So uh, there, there there are a lot of problems, Justin. I'm not sure of a roadmap back because we're in such a polarized environment now. You're seeing media institutions try to earn trust within a cohort of the American people rather than uh, gaining the trust of broad swaths of America because broad swaths of America don't agree on things. And so it's it's hard to see what the pathway is to get the media uh, and, and press to have, you know, 60%, 70% approval and trust ratings in such divided, uh, deinstitutionalized, stratified times. Yeah, it's tough. And we all should be worried about that trust there. Uh, To your point, it's a two way street. We need to make sure that we're supporting the folks who do it right. And the people within that profession need to make sure that they're being as intellectually honest as possible. The people who are teaching the folks who are going into this profession should be teaching less ideology and more just uh, uh, facts and what the people need to hear and good investigative techniques. Trust the process. Trust what this uh, this art or science is meant to do and let it do it itself. You don't necessarily always need to to editorialize or, or, or uh, push something to the right or to the left. And I, I think we see a lot of that because the times are so, uh, I, I guess, a little bit dangerous because the times are so polarized and the threat from Trump is so serious. I think people are saying, well, maybe I need to push this a little further to get people to understand how serious this is. I think that's a problem. Just report. Do your job and the facts uh, should be able to take care of the rest of it. Yeah. And, you know, here at the Church Politics Podcast, and I know Justin at the Ann Campaign, one of the, one of the things we're trying to do uh, is lift up good journalism uh, that, that folks can trust, even if uh, it's not on a subject that they like, or even if, uh, you know, some of the quotes in the piece they disagree with. We're trying to lift up good journalism that is honest and balanced and takes things as they are, doesn't put a thumb on the scale unnecessarily. And so that's, that's something that we do on this show and that we, uh, we'll, we'll, we, uh, plan on doing in the future because we know that folks are looking for, uh, media sources and reporters and news that they can, uh, process with healthy skepticism, not, uh, not profound cynicism. (laughs) There you go. 
All right. We're going to take another a quick break. Uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. All right. We're back at the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, right there in your neck of the woods, uh, uh, there is a really uh, incredible uh, gubernatorial race uh, between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp that uh, is catching the imagination of the country for a, a bunch of reasons. Uh, uh, compelling candidates, uh, very uh, polarized candidates, as the New York Times reported uh, earlier uh, last week uh, in, in a story titled, In Georgia Governor's Race, A Defining Moment for a Southern State. Uh, Justin, I'm not going to talk too much here to open. You're there. Uh, you know Georgia politics better than uh, just about anybody I know. Uh, what do you think about this 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 race? What what do you think is going to happen? Uh, Democrats haven't won uh, a statewide uh, for the for the uh, for the governor's uh, mansion, uh, I believe, in 16 years. It, it's been a while. Um, wh- what do you think is going to happen in this race? Well, we are starting off with a very serious contrast. When you talk about uh, Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, you don't get uh, too much more of a contrast between two candidates. You have Kemp, who is a conservative uh, white male. You have Stacey Abrams, who is a black woman uh, that is very progressive. She represents kind of a new posture for the Democratic Party in southern states. Prior to this uh, campaign, Democrats really that were running for governor or running for Senate were really trying to posture themselves as very, very moderate, middle of the road, being able to reach out to some of the Republicans in the suburbs and all that stuff. And I think she'll still try to reach out to some of those people, but she's not really changing or moving away from her base, really embracing the base, embracing this very progressive agenda and really hoping through that position of strength that people are drawn to the candidacy. Uh, and last Tuesday, so we had a runoff in Georgia. So uh, Kemp just got out of a runoff for the governor's race, and it was a complete landslide. Now, Brian Kemp is the secretary of state here in Georgia right now, and he beat our lieutenant governor, who was Casey Cagle, um, 69% to 31%. Uh, Kemp got Trump's endorsement and went way up in the polls late last week, but no one expected an almost 30 point win. I mean, that was that was crazy. Cagle, for one reason, is because Cagle is probably the best retail politician in Georgia. Uh, He just has that type of uh, uh, those type of skills. But uh, he was uh, he was really kind of being he got caught up in this kind of GOP character. Uh, And in the runoff, he, he was actually caught on tape saying that he supported a bad policy to harm an opponent. And I think that really hurt hurt him with a lot of people. If you look at the numbers, you'll find that some people that voted for him in the general actually voted for Kemp in the runoff. And, and that tape may have played a big role in it. The knock on Cagle, which I agreed with, was you don't necessarily know where his core is, that he was a little bit too much of a politician. And I think that tape just solidified all the things that people have been saying about him. Now, Brian Kemp, again, who Brian Kemp, who again is the um, secretary of state right now, he had an infamous and very coarse ad where he was basically threatening someone with a gun 
Uh, and, and, and really, to me, playing to the, the worst impulses of the Republican Party. Now, I am told, so I'll give this voice. I'm told by many of my Republican friends that he's not as extreme as he's acting. Um, but it's clearly problematic. And I, I, it's very hard to tell if you, if you don't know him personally. And so I, I think I'm from the school that says be who you are. And if that's not what you you know, that's not who you are. You probably shouldn't act that out uh, yeah. in front of the camera. But he's running against a Democrat uh, who is the minority leader in the House, and that is Stacey Abrams. I believe she is the first uh, African-American woman who's been the minority leader in a, in a southern state. Um, and she she would be the first uh, African-American female governor in the nation. Uh, her credentials are very strong. Uh, she's intelligent, a- accomplished, uh, and has a, and really is a national progressive darling. I mean, she's getting a lot of love from all all around. I think she was on the cover of at least a regional version of the Times of Time magazine, and uh, just there's a lot to to be said about all that she has accomplished. And I would just point out that as I wrote in the Hill, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, uh, Michael. Um, I wrote this a few months ago in the Hill, actually, that Abrams, for all the good things that she has done and all the potential that she has, the one thing that pains me just a little bit is that she has gone so far left on almost every social issue. Yeah. Uh, Planhood, Parenthood and are all are right there with her kind of leading in some ways, you know, the fundraising for the cause. And uh, my problem with that is that I don't think that really reflects uh, the values of even Georgia Democrats. I don't think it was necessary. And I think to some extent it is unfortunate that candidates and she may believe these things. So I'm not questioning her veracity again, but that candidates feel they have to go all the way to the left to run as a Democrat, especially in a state where the pool for folks that are that far left isn't really that big. And you're really banking on the fact that people like me um, in the state who are either Christian Democrats or otherwise are going to feel like they don't have any other choice. And so you can push it all the way to the left on these social issues. And that would be the one thing that I would point to that'd be disappointing about Abrams. They both have their problems. This is going to be an interesting race again because of the stark contrast between these two um, politicians. Well, you you touched on so much that is important and worth discussing. And I, th- I think this is probably a race we're going to be discussing uh, through, through November. So I won't try and hit everything. I, I, I will just say, you know, this Republican argument, and there are, there are several candidates out there uh, running in these midterms, including uh, a Josh Hawley out in Missouri who have, you know, run in these primaries have, uh, dug from the gutter, but sort of have people around them who suggest, oh, that that really isn't the real Josh. That isn't the real Brian Kemp. Uh, uh, that the the real one's going to come out in the general. And I just say I'm not sure that that's been our experience uh, as a country and in, in our politics that uh, that candidates who run a certain way in their primaries they're ultimately accountable for that. Now, Brian Kemp kind of came out of nowhere, like you said, Justin, and and part of the reason he was able to come out of nowhere was this very strong uh, television ad uh, strategy uh, that implanted a version of himself, uh, whether it's the real version or not, and and I think in politics that's kind of a – the real version is the one that you put out there. <laughs> you, you know that, but like, you can't, you can't, you can't say like, I'm going to act one way, but 
oh, if you if you talk to my 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 high school best friend, they're going to say I'm I'm something else. But, uh, right. you know, he implanted himself in voters mind. They're going to be expecting something from him uh, and they're going to be expecting him to suggest, for instance, that uh, he's going to round up criminal. Im- uh, uh, he's going to round up. Uh, criminal immigrants and illegal immigrants in his pickup truck and drive them to the border himself. This is a, this is a a claim he made on, on the campaign trail. Uh, uh, And you know, it, so so that, that's the first thing I want to say for the Republican candidates out there. I I know it's, it's, it's difficult in the party right now, uh, but, but you need to put your foot down on what you're comfortable with. of what what is coming out of your mouth, and then the ads that are coming out from your campaign. Just just because you uh, hire an outside uh, communications firm, just because you have a direct mail firm that you you don't really look, you're responsible for that ultimately. And I'm not really interested in hearing excuses about that. And then Justin, I'll just say with with uh, with Abrams, I think you're exactly right. I mean, uh, she is running a a different campaign from uh, Wendy Davis in Texas, but the circumstances kind of strike me as similar. Uh, folks might remember Wendy Davis uh, made made fame by filibustering a pro-life bill in uh, the Texas legislature and then decided to run for governor. And it was all of this, you know, she's going to motivate all these people who've never been to the polls before, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because she's uh, going to unapolog- unapologetically approach the, the issue, women's turnout won't be uh, won't be depressed, and she got walloped. And one of the reasons she got walloped is because she's in Texas. <laughs> she's in Texas now. There are a lot of changes going on in Texas. A lot of changes going on uh, in Georgia. Georgia just since 1990 uh, has moved from. Uh, in the high 20s of non-white population to 40% non-white voting population. Uh, and so Stacey Abrams is onto something. Stacey Abrams clearly is onto something when uh, the Democratic primary turnout for her primary nearly matched Republican turnout uh, for, for, for the first time in a long time, certainly the first time in the modern era of, of Republicans dominating the state. Uh, and so she, she, she has a real shot with this organizing strategy. The, the, the thing that we, we talk about is in, in, in a race where you're fighting uphill, what is the point of a, you're, the other campaign is going to be going after enough voters themselves without you you literally handing over swaths of the population to the other the other candidates saying actually these voters we don't really have much of a much of a message uh, f- for them they're probably Kent people I think Democratic can, uh, campaigns operate best when they they consider their message to have the uh, an appeal to the entire state or the entire country and even if they know in the back of their mind. They're not going to get 100% of the vote. They run campaigns like they think they could. Uh, and and uh, I'm not sure uh, Stacey is doing that yet. I'm interested to see what 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 Abrams will, will do uh, after Labor Day in the stretch to the general. But right now, just in both campaigns, both Kemp and Abrams are promising uh, that they won't really change, that they're going to be focused on their base and let their bases duke it out 
which leaves a, a, the broad center of Georgia politics, which has been the gravity in the state for so long, uh, uh, like you said, kind of uh, having to choose between two options that aren't really appealing to them directly at this point. Yeah, and I, I just don't think Abrams had to run that way. Somebody could, somebody would say, well, Kemp actually had to to get out of the primary. And <laughs> if you're about principle, you don't just do what you have to do. You do what you're supposed to do. So don't mistake me for saying that's OK. But I don't think Abrams had to do that. She could have sp- spoken to a lot of uh, Democrats who are not that far uh, to the left on social issues. I, I know that it pays off when it comes to kind of financing coming from out of state, you know, the help that you get from Planned Parenthood and others. But is it representing the people who, you know, who uh, are voting for you? That's some, that's a question that we have to answer. Also, something that is interesting. There's another uh, race in the lieutenant governor's race, which is going to be just as uh, kind of polarizing or contrasted um, because you have two c- candidates, a white woman a, uh, and a white man that are you know very different in that space. One of the things that was disappointing to me and I've had conversations with some folks in Georgia about it is that the lady that's running for lieutenant governor on the Democrat side basically was forced to throw her church under the bus for maintaining the Christian sexual ethic. Hmm. And I thought that was pretty embarrassing. I mean, to, to put on your website, yeah, um, I disagree with my church on this and I, you know, I stand up my church on that. That's tough. Um you know, she'll have to deal with that personally. And, I, you know, I, I hope there was an apology or something said to the people in her church. But to throw your church under the bus is not where we want to go. I don't I don't know if any office is worth that. But uh, we'll, it's something that I think we'll see a little more as people need to distance themselves from some of those views. And it's something that as Christians, we should discourage and push back against. Yeah. And, and Justin, uh, what was troubling to me was... Uh, well, so that that the incident was uh, troubling on its own, but uh, she, she she's been trumpeting her that she's an evangelical in other scenarios where it's convenient to her, um, and so look, you you can't have it both both ways. I mean, I read that statement, uh, and she didn't say, you know, I have a disagreement with uh, uh, my church's position here. She, 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 she said, I have no problem. And I'm paraphrasing a bit here. She said, I have no problem standing uh, up against what's wrong, no matter what the cost. It's like, well, then why aren't you going to a different church? You know, if it's not just a prudential disagreement, but you're gonna, you know, at the behest of an advocacy group, call out your churches, you know, being on the wrong side of history or whatever, then, then what are you doing there other than trying to get social capital and political capital from uh, from being being there? So it, it was it was a pretty, pretty amazing, uh, uh, pretty amazing thing. And I, I agree. I think we can expect to see see more of this. We saw it with, uh, I believe, Andrew White down in Texas, where he was he was an elder on a church board. And so some groups investigated the positions of that church and and called him to the carpet over it even if they didn't match his policy positions and um yeah across the atlantic uh tim tim farron head of the liberal democrats uh, faced the same thing so uh what and it's just honestly michael it's it's just one of those situations where christians are going to have to have heart right we're going to have to know what we value know what prioritize things properly and if somebody comes to you telling you you need to throw the church under the bus you should look at them like they're crazy. Like, how could you even make that suggestion? 
Yes. But as long as we send the precedent that that's even an option to come up to a Christian and tell them, even if I had some uh, disagreements with my church, I'm not about to do that. I'm not about to make that a point in a political campaign. That is a completely right. embarrassing. I mean, it, it, well, we'll talk. It's, it's a deeper issue. And I don't, I don't want to go too deep into it. We got other things to get to. But that is really sad that candidates, Christians have allowed a political party to even think to even think they should mention that in our presence. That is unfortunate. Right. It goes it goes to and campaign's message about religious exclusion and, and that you got you got to draw the line or else it'll become expected uh, that uh, folks attending certain kind of churches, uh, people who worship uh, a certain kind of way uh, aren't uh, aren't viable for public office, aren't fully members of the American family. And we, we just can't have that. Uh Speaking of uh, who is considered members of the American family and uh, uh, who, who is, uh, well, patriotic, uh, when we get back from this break, we're going to talk about, you know, training camp. NFL training camp has started, and that means uh, there's been a surge of talk about uh, kneeling and protesting and all of that. And so w- we have a couple quick things we want to say uh, on that related to Uh, one of the NFL's most uh, popular owners. We'll be right back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back at the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, Justin, uh, as we said, uh, training camp started. So, you know, reporters are attending these training camps, asking all kinds of questions. And there's not too much news the first week of training camp. And so they're, they're asking about Big, big social issue and, and player personnel issue uh, that uh, dominated sort of the owners meetings and obviously was uh, a major force and issue uh, over the last season or two. Uh, and that's protests during the national anthems. And uh, you pointed out uh, Jerry Jones had had something to say. Uh, and I, I believe uh, Jerry expressed that he wouldn't even let players uh, stay in the locker room if they wanted to, uh, that, that they were going to report on duty for, uh, the national anthem standing, uh, kind of whether, whether they liked it or not. And for, you know, significant reason that, that, uh, kind of prescription was not, was not taken too well, but, uh, how do you think this is going to shake out this season? And, And specifically on Jerry Jones, who, who does, you know, Maybe the Patriots are are up there uh, now too, but Jerry Jones certainly runs uh, one of the most storied franchises in NFL history. Uh, for him to be taking a position like this, what, what does it what does it say? What does it mean? Yeah, this is going to continue to be a problem for the NFL. Just really a headache in trying to please both sides. They're in a position where part of their base is the more conservative folks. The other part of their base is more urban uh, that would support these kind of protests. And so they're trying and their players are from that uh, demographic. And so they're trying to please two sides and also deal with these owners uh, and their personalities, which can go any way at any time. Let me give a little bit of background as we get into it in May. The NFL issued a policy basically saying that players who didn't stand for the anthem on the field could be fined, but that but 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 that players who didn't want to stand could stay in the locker room. 
the NFL Player Association filed a grievance uh, once that policy was issued, saying that it infringed on the rights of the players and that the NFL should have spoken to the union first before issuing the actual policy. Uh, in response to that, the NFL decided not to enforce the policy this year until it reached an agreement with the NFLPA, NFL Players Association, which is the, the union for the players. So now it is up for the teams, team by team, to decide what's going on. And so enters Jerry, enter Jerry Jones stage left to say, hey, yeah, I, I know I signed on to this new policy that said they could go into the locker room, but now I'm saying they can't even just go in the locker room. They have to come out and do exactly what I say uh, they're going to do. It's a tough conversation, and, and this is the hard part of this whole deal. The Ann campaign and myself, we have come out and said, hey, these players – are not wrong for protesting. We support protests in certain situations. And because of what they're protesting, this makes sense to us. Um, and, and so we, we maintain that position. But at the same time, this is the entertainment business. And so much of this is kind of mixed with entertainment. And people have to realize that when it comes to Jerry Jones, too, he's a showman. Yeah. Right. And so he's going to do what helps his bottom line. You know, he's help, he's cool with Trump. So that's something that plays into it. But if this helps his bottom line to make a big issue of this, he's going to make a big issue out of it, which kind of obscures the true point of the protest and whether people who are going against it are going against it for, you know, uh, honest reasons or, you know, are being uh, fair or not. I don't even know what to make of Jerry Jones because is he putting on a show? Is he just trying to keep the name and the controversy going because it does benefit him in some way or the other? Is he showing love for Trump who suggested that he should do this? It is really hard to tell. Um, you know, those players who, who wish to make a statement, I hope that they make a statement and also find other ways uh, outside of football and outside of the game to make a statement because they have a lot of uh, ability to do that. They've been placed in a place where people are looking at them. They have resources. And I hope they seek out those opportunities as well. But again, this this whole conversation is getting really obscured. And it's hard. to It's starting to be hard to see what benefit is coming out of it. But if you have something to say, say it. Jerry Jones, you know, I don't I don't agree with his position. I just don't know if he's being serious or if this is all entertainment. And so to put political analysis on something where somebody's just trying to be an entertainment or get to their bottom line can be difficult. It's just going to be a tough situation that they're going to be dealing with, it seems like, for this uh, whole upcoming season. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, I, I like what I thought Malcolm Jenkins, uh, who plays for the Eagles, uh, a divisional rival of, of the Cowboys. I, I thought his his uh, his comment was pretty interesting here. And he just pointed out, you know, the, the thing that these players are, are hearing from uh, from some quarters is, look, you need to keep focus on football. Uh, this is. Uh, we're not a social cause. Uh, you're getting paid to play football, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Jenkins just pointed out, well, uh, you know, w- we weren't hearing that uh, when during domestic violence uh, uh, advertising campaigns and, and pregame events. We weren't hearing that during the entire month of the year when there's a focus on breast cancer. And just to be clear, all, all those focuses are, are are good and needed. But I think Malcolm Jenkins' point is that, Clearly, what's not at issue is nothing can be connected to the game of football uh, that is not football. Now, I, I'd like to see, and I know that there are some great people at the NFL uh, Players Association that are really sophisticated uh, thinkers when it comes to public policy. Uh, Troy Vincent, and I, I know some uh, some players 
Anquan Bolden retired from the league so that he could focus on uh, some, some of these issues. Uh, I, I wonder, should the NFL, uh, can the NFL be pressured to be registering voters during the first couple of months of this season leading up to the midterms? Uh, is there some kind of uh, 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 criminal justice uh, ma- major financial move that the NFL can make? I know that there have been some things, but um, I wonder if the players can, can leverage their owner's concern about the protests with some kind of really significant NFL expenditure that attacks directly the issues that they're protesting and whether that might be, uh, whether that might be something that's helpful. So, you know, if there wasn't a uh, protest before the game, but players in N- or the, the uh, fans in NFL stadiums were given a text number where they could donate to, I don't know, Brian Stevenson uh, or, uh, or to some uh, voting where they could register to vote. Maybe the players would view that as a protest in itself as a, as a win. But I agree, Justin, it's, I want to see where this thing is going to, uh, evolve to in terms of uh, leveraging these players' uh, integral role in the league, to say the least, uh, to move that corporate empire uh, into taking some action. Yep, that would be good to see. Well, uh, I, I believe we were going to close. Uh, just want to give a shout out to the folks at Revoice 18. They held their conference in uh, St. Louis. Uh, over uh, the last week, and my friend Wesley Hill was speaking there. Uh, Nate Collins is the the director there, and who actually I believe celebrates his birthday today. So happy birthday, uh, happy birthday to Nate! Uh, but I, I hear it was a, a successful uh, time, successful and edifying conference. Uh, and there was an interesting interview with Nate. Uh, uh, at Christianity Today, where he was uh, answering some some common questions about the Revoice Conference, and I'd recommend that as a resource for folks who have been hearing about this thing but are not quite sure what what to think. Uh, but 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 yeah, shout out to Revoice, and, and I'm glad that uh, y- y'all seem to uh, have a successful conference. Yeah, and, and just for a background, my understanding, and I probably don't know as much about the conference as maybe Michael does, but my understanding is this this conference was about how Christians can deal with LGBT issues and people who are same sex attracted and so on within uh, the, the Christian community. And so really, this was kind of looking at what what the, what should this look like going forward? What support, support can we give and so on? And again, I don't know a whole lot about the conference. What I do know is that it was supported by Wesley Hill and Preston Sprinkle, uh, who are yeah, two yeah, Christians yeah. that I look to uh, when it comes to the discussion about sexuality. Uh, they are well studied. They're biblical and they're compassionate on this issue. All the things that I, I myself am striving to be and that the Ann campaign truly strives to be. Um, the first thing that struck me about Revoice 18 is that, number one, that they were maintaining the historic or biblical view of sexuality. That was important. I think in, in any of these discussions, that's the place where you need to start, which is the doctrine. Right. Make sure the doctrine is sound uh, on that issue. But at the same time, they were trying to better address the issues that people were struggling with. Now, I, I can't say that I agree with all the language they were using and all that, but I appreciate them trying to figure it out. Because the fact of the matter is, Michael, in so many ways, the church has failed in some areas on this sexuality conversation. 
Uh, in some cases, we've observed the letter of the doctrine without exercising the compassion of Christ, right? Uh, telling people they're wrong, but not telling them they're loved and 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 that uh, giving them the good news. There has been a serious failure there. There's also been some uh, some hypocrisy there, whereas we'll let other other things go and have compassion towards other things, but <laughs> not towards people who are struggling, struggling with these conversations. Until we face up to that, I don't see why anybody should listen to anything we have to say, because there's seriously just a lack of credibility in, within that conversation. Um, it's almost as if uh, uh, many of us have been saying, look, this is wrong. So I'm going to show my opposition by standing as far away from it as I can. And that way I'm not going to be able to sympathize and I'm not going to be able to disciple the people who are struggling through this issue. And this is not an, and this is why I have so much respect for Wesley Hill, who's making so many sacrifices on a daily basis that none, that some of us have no idea uh, how hard that can be. I commend him for those things and and give him, you know, some leeway in that conversation. But in 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 addressing it in the way that we have in some instances, it's just not what I see Jesus doing in the Bible. Jesus doesn't say that behavior. Yeah. So he talks about yeah. the behavior, that behavior is wrong. And so I'm going to completely disassociate myself entirely from the person. I'm not going to reach out to them. I'm not going to show them the good news. I'm just going to stand from afar and shout at them. I didn't I didn't see Jesus doing that. And so whether you believe Revoice got this completely wrong or completely right, there should be an appreciation for what they were trying to get at and and trying to be thoughtful about an issue that is tough. And at the end of the day, making sure that say, that we're saying, hey, we are going to maintain the doctrine, but you're not going to be confused on whether there's a, a level of compassion there. And that's really what I appreciated about this conversation, even if there were some things that I wasn't cr- quite sure about. Yeah, I uh uh, I, I think, you know, I share your appreciation for 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 Wesley and uh, so many of the folks who were at this conference have just been an inspiration to me and my faith uh, and, and help be an encouragement to me and being faithful in the things that uh, the, the, the things that that trouble me, the things that confront me in my life. And so I think that there's so much to learn from the the commitment to faithfulness that the folks there uh, showed I'm I wasn't able to attend the conference, but a lot of the talks, if not all of them, are up online. I'm looking forward to watching Wesley's uh, keynote. Eve Tushnet uh, gave a powerful talk, from what I heard, and of course Nate uh, Matthew Lee Anderson, who's written some amazing work on uh, on marriage, uh, was was speaking at the pre-conference, I believe. And so so yeah, uh, I, I think uh, uh, I'm encouraged to see this conversation take place. I hope that. Uh, people who talk a lot about this issue um, uh, will uh, pay attention to what these folks are saying. Not that you have to agree with all of it, but uh, but but certainly uh, Revoice has a particular standing uh, that that d- deserves to be uh, to be heard out. All right, you know, just uh, oh, we're about to wrap up. Uh, I, I did just want to point out, you know, the the deadline for the the court imposed deadline for families to be reunified passed and uh, many families have been reunited but there are still 700 plus children who are still in government custody separated from their families uh and uh, you know i i just think it's uh it it's it's a difficult thing to do but uh the the government made it difficult on itself by breaking up these families 
with what's becoming more and more clear, absolutely no plan uh, for even keeping these these kids attached to their families uh keeping their records together anything like that and so it's uh it, it's it's uh it, it's a sad it's a sad thing and there's only so much you can uh talk about what a uh, what 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 a what a what a tragic thing <laughs> is happening uh uh in in this country i'm encouraged by the, the activists and the leaders uh, on the ground, uh, especially the Christian social service agencies, Catholic relief services, uh, Lutheran services, all the folks on the ground who are serving uh, at the border and serving these families, Bethany Christian services that's that's serving these kids. Uh, but but, you know, the, the deadline has passed and 700 plus kids are still separated from their from their families. I'm glad you brought this up. I'll end on that as well. This is one of those situations where you just have to get the job done. These people need to be uh, reunited. And I know we've all had bosses where you said, well, something went wrong and this happened and that happened. No, no, just get it right. (laughs) And this is a time when the American people say, I don't want to hear any excuses. Figure it out. Get it right. Um, And that's that needs to be our point of view when it comes to this immigration conversation, especially when we're talking about reuniting children and their parents. Get it done. That's what you get paid for, and we shouldn't accept anything less. Yeah. All right, folks. This is the Church Politics Podcast. It's been uh, wonderful to be with you for another week. Enjoy uh, this summer week. It's going to be beautiful out as we head into August, and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Take care. For those feeling abandonment in the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.